Have a few jars, mate. Well, I've got some white wine here, so... Bloody fucking hell. What, are you going to trash the gaff? <laughs> <laughs> you know yeah, what I'm, I'm like t- on the old vino? Yeah, yeah, stay away from it. He was in the gutter. <laughs> Remember that? Yeah. That was once as well. Once, My yeah. job did get wrapped on it, didn't I? Yeah, it was pretty bad. <laughs> <laughs> When we went to watch The Cure, I think that was that was quite a funny one. It was funny, but also, like, as much as we, we were uh, huge Cure fans, that's got to be the most boring gig I've ever seen. It yeah, was, it was. Also, that... like Johnny Burrell doing Boys Don't Cry. Yeah, uh, probably. Shocking. Yeah. Shocking. <laughs> <laughs> it was, wasn't it? That was when you could still get bars of chocolate on the tube platform as well. Yeah, because I think we were just drinking all day. We just had, didn't well, eat. And then it was like, oh, we've got to go to wherever it was, Farringdon or whatever, to, to watch The Cure. It. And it's like, let's get something to, to eat. Be, I mean, to be fair, that's... I mean, you can put this in if you want, Harry. <laughs> I don't mind. To be fair, like, put whatever you want in. But the, the, the thing was that we... we When we started, that was when the whole sort of Shoreditch East London thing was just coming up. So it wasn't as oversaturated as it is now it was still quite horrible around there really mm. so basically what we used to do is on a Saturday we'd go on the piss at like 12 in the afternoon me Brandon and James um, go to the Bricklayers Arms sit in there till about 6 or 7 and then people would start turning up who we knew and they'd be on their way out so depending on how drunk we were we'd either go out with them or if we were too drunk, we'd sort of manage to get each other home on the tube and then, like, get in at about eight when our girlfriends and friends were, like, literally just going out. So, yeah, I don't know. Saturdays were a bit of a blur back then, weren't they? Yeah, but it was really cool because, like, um, you know, like, you just go to this one, like, the Bricklayers in, where was it, Shoreditch? Yeah. And, like... You know, like throughout the course of the day, like all your mates and that would turn up and it was like all yeah. people from different bands and like all this kind yeah. of thing. And like at one point, you know, you'd go in there and there'd be like just us and like a couple of like lounge lizards like sitting there and then like it'd just be packed full of like everyone. And then like it's like, oh, I'm going to, you know, like the Astoria to watch so-and-so and someone else is going here. And so oh, a lot like, of we- um, a lot of warehouse, I know it's a bit of a cliche now, but a lot yeah. of warehouse parties around there then. Mm, yeah. You could get away with it. And remember that geese, there was that uh, traveller who had that dog used to sit in the corner. Yeah, yeah. His van outside. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Amazing. But we'd do yeah, like yeah. six or seven hours in there. Crazy. rat assed. Yeah, I just wanted to ask you about, you say the recordings that, you know, the, the record label had paid for. Um, yeah. Did they ever? Did they ever surface? Did you ever get a hold of them? Nah. We have we have got them, but they just at, at the time they didn't want us to use them. But obviously, it's been quite a long time now, so I'm kind of thinking in this day and age, things can get leaks, can't they? You know, <laughs> naming no names. Well, yeah. <laughs> uh, I think the problem is like in my like the issue with that album as well is that because we spent two weeks doing it and then we were on tour the day after we'd finished 
us doing it. We didn't have a reflection really because we didn't get any rough mixes when we were touring. We got mixes that we'd done during those two weeks. We hadn't t- we hadn't had time to actually reflect on them. And the they sent mastering away to get done at Sterling Sound in New York because it was like the hit place to get stuff mastered. And the master that came back was not very good, to be fair. But we couldn't say that we didn't want to use it because they'd spent like two or three grand mastering it. And I think that was my problem with the dissatisfaction of the recording was the mastering was so dull and unimpactful. Um, mm. So for me... I think as soon as we'd done it and I'd heard the final bit, I think I was like, I, I just didn't really like it. Um, <clears throat> and also, we worked with um, Gareth Parton, who'd done a really, really good job on Another Day and Something You Said. And I don't know whether it's because he was rushed or maybe because I think it was the, the workload, to be fair. Some of the production wasn't quite as good, I don't think, and maybe not as punchy. Mm. Um, so we had doubts about the record anyway I don't think we'd I mean we'd discussed it between each other you know because Keith was in the band by that point so we'd we'd have discussed it between ourselves I don't remember saying that dissatisfaction to the label so I don't think that would have affected anything but Uh, do you remember John though like the label uh, no sorry the managers they would come down to the studio and they'd be like oh you need to put like an extra chorus, chorus. In here. yeah, 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 do, yeah, 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 you know, and stuff yeah. like that. It was just like, what the fuck, like, so. Well, this is the thing, just... yeah, exactly. I mean, it's like I was saying about when we, when we have outsiders working with us, other than our little group. Once we'd got a proper management team, other than my granddad's, because he, uh, basically, he took a back seat because he felt he was being pushed out, which he was by them, mm. and we thought we needed them when we sort of didn't. So we let that happen. Um, And they started trying to encroach on the music, which is something my granddad never did because he knew nothing about it. And he knew that we knew what we were doing. Um, So when they started encroaching, like coming down saying, no, you need to do this, you know, you need a chorus or this or blah, 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 blah. You know, that was pretty difficult to swallow. Um, for a band who had been around as long as we had, I mean, it was, you know, yeah, it was not not a good position to be in, but you have to try and please people. And I think that's probably the only time I've ever even marginally bent to someone else's opinion, I would say. Um, but having said that, I mean, I haven't listened to that record in a long, long time because I haven't got a copy of it. But listening back to it, I'd pro- I'd, I think it's probably quite a good record, to be fair, because the songs are really good. The, so- um, the songs the songs are really good, yeah. Um, as you said earlier, I think maybe some of the recordings don't do them justice, but... Yeah. You know, and, and live as well. They Because I think we were playing quite a lot of them in the horrors set, you know. Yeah, true. Um, yeah. And they were, they were going down so well, you know, and... Yeah. Again, it's just another case of like a label and managers missing a trick there, you know, like. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. I mean, also, it took everyone, once we'd got, once we'd started working with people who were more well known in the industry, it slowed us down so much. And we were never like that. We always turned stuff around very quickly. 
we were not ones to drag our heels. And, you know, they, you know, it's, it's like I said earlier with regards to the single, uh, You Didn't Care, that was supposed to come out with uh, when the Horrors tour happened, when we were supporting the Horrors. And the album was supposed to come out not long after that. And I think the whole thing was delayed by a month or two because the PR people wanted more time. Now, that's fine if you're dealing with a band who have got a lot riding on them, but it wouldn't have made no difference to us whether or not we'd have released the album on time or, you know, it wouldn't have delayed anyone else. So they just were pissing about, really, and um, trying to bend to the whims of other people we were working with. We should have... The whole thing should have been dealt with a lot quicker, in my opinion. And Brandon, I'm right in thinking you started your own record label like quite early on. Well, yeah, yeah. I was just thinking that actually because we, I started a record label just yeah around about that time, and we actually put out a Sid Barrett cover just as like a little thing because obviously like he just died, and you know we're obviously being big like big Sid Barrett fans. It was just like, sort of felt like the right thing to do. But so we we sort of chose to put out like a cover of Lucifer Sam on my label as like the first release. And um, I think the ma- our managers at the time just gave us a load of stick for doing it, you know. Yeah. They were, kind of criticised us for doing it and and criticised the whole method of doing it and the way we done it. But actually, you know, we put it out, it sold out, it got decent reviews. You know, we got it out on time and we made a video for it and the whole package kind of went really well yet the single that then we, we then went to put out after with the label and the managers got delayed didn't come out on time we couldn't sell them because we weren't on tour because it was late you know and that was you know that was kind of the issues that we had but yeah that, at that point right I started a little label and um yeah it was just I don't know, it just seemed like the right thing to do at the time, to be honest. Well, I mean, Ele- Electricity was the other release on the label, just the second one. And Electricity yeah. in our homes was, without sounding nepotistic, but my brother was a drummer in that band. But they were, at that time, the best band in London. Yeah. Absolutely. They were fucking amazing. You know, they were a really, really good band. And again, that, that EP, that first EP, sold out straight away. Yeah. And that that was when we did have a relationship with other bands at that time. Mm. You know, Electricity and later on with Disconcerts, who I, I produced. That was when, you know, we really felt an affinity with those bands because they were so good and yeah. they were younger. So with, with Brandon's label and obviously Brandon went on to work with Strange Idols as well. Yeah, I mean, it was great. You know, the, the Lucifer Sam single, as Brandon said, we did. We, that was a completely on the off chance of literally saying, "Well, I think it was." Did we not do that the day Sid Barrett died, or the day after? Yeah, my, yeah. I think. My I think we just. Yeah, we just went round to your mum's, didn't we? And recorded That's it in it. your bedroom. That's it. And yeah. then we gave to play his bass part. Turned that round in like probably a month or whatever. And then obviously we we did the electricity brand and put that out, and. It was great. I mean, it's just, and that really is the 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 paradox of of working with the people that we ended up working with, and doing the stuff that that we did with those bands that was so great and well received, and then other people get involved, and it's difficult. Do you know what I mean? It's another fine example of us actually 
doing something ourselves and it actually yeah. going really well. And then exactly. you get these so-called professionals coming in and just fucking everything up. And it's exactly, yeah. 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 You've kind of done it on your own terms since you had those problems with that first full album kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, I think... No, we, I mean... Sorry, we kind mate, of did can't. before... I was going to say, we kind of did before anyway. It was just that little period where I guess we put a bit of faith in someone else and, you know, didn't quite work out. And, you know, we were, we were getting invoiced for fucking meetings that our managers were having for other bands and shit like that. And they were taking cuts out of gigs that we were getting ourselves and tours we were getting ourselves. And it's just like, you know, we were doing so well before, like you've just come along and you just want something for nothing, you know? And, and then, yeah, once we got rid of them and kind of got back to kind of how we operate and do things ourselves, it kind of all slotted back into place again, really. I think going along, you know, I mean, our, our career really has been a, a series of, of of single deals with people really i would say you know we've done singles with people here and there and blah blah blah. we did pop tones you know uh we with pop tones who had uh the others and uh special needs and the paddingtons and the armstrong blah 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 and pop tones in my opinion backed the wrong horse because they overlooked us thinking we were the obtuse weird post-punk band and that all these other bands were the new thing and when those other bands didn't really achieve anything, you know, it was too late and we were just pushed out. So, you know, I always think we were overlooked commercially by a lot of the bands. You know, I don't want this to turn into a bitch fest because it's not, you know, it's, it's way, is this the past, you know, this is way, this is years and years ago. But I always felt we we're a little bit undervalued by a lot of the labels we work with. Um, and yeah prime example of that would have been the pop oral fiasco dossier um and then after that yeah we, then we we took it back to the diy thing again um went to, for another tour of japan released times encounter on their own label um which was a good collection of songs production probably could have been a bit better but we were doing it ourselves because we didn't have any money. I mean, we were still earning decent money from gigs, but that was going into recording and pressing. Um, and then the one thing that sort of derailed it really at that time was after our second tour of Japan, uh, Keith, our, our third bassist, left the band right at the time where we were trying to promote that record, really. So, you know, that was a massive blow. Uh, and I don't think at that point we recovered from that because it was so unexpected. Where When James left the band um, to go and join a band with one of the guys from 80s Matchbox, it wasn't really... I mean, it was upsetting because I love James and we both did and, and, we were, and we were doing really well at that point. It wasn't as much of a surprise. You could sort of feel it growing, you know. Um, you could feel something was going to happen. With Keith... I did not see that coming. Um, I don't think either of us did, really. No, um, not at all. So, but when that happened, that that sort of drew the curtain on that pit. I mean, we did, to be fair, we did some really decent recordings after that with my brother. Uh, we did um, a song called Front on Backwards, which, was, which I wrote in Japan during that second tour. And uh, a couple of other more, more, more sort of jam-type songs really um 
can't remember the name of them now. But yeah, so we did those and we also did a short tour of Germany with Charlie from Electricity playing the bass. But it you know, it felt like uh it felt like something had changed essentially. Um and then Brandon and I, you know, I mean we you know, we love each other and we we we've always loved playing music together. So then we decided to form a like a a, a four piece uh, was it four, four or five piece um, soul band essentially like an early Dexys Midnight Runners mm, thing. Um, yeah. I guess it must which, have been five. It was it me, you, Bonnie, Eli, and Paul. Yeah. How many is that? Five. five. That's why we weren't that why we were called oh. the Drop Five. <laughs> I mean, you did say you were bad at maths, but fucking <laughs> hell, mate. Fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so we formed another we formed another band, you know, the Drop Five, which was not a lot of people know about that really. But or the Drop Four, whatever way you want to. Fuck off! <laughs> <laughs> look, mate, it's look, yeah, Drop Five, you know, and that was the Fab that Four, was, yeah. <laughs> please, <laughs> uh, that was really. I mean, that was really enjoyable. It didn't last long for various reasons, but that was fucking good as well, you know, and, and then that led on to Dimly Lit, really. Um, I just wanted to reflect a bit on the early days. So I was listening to um, an interview you did with Mark Riley, I think in 2007. Oh, yeah. And you mentioned your image and stuff, and uh, you just mentioned in an interview that you got quite a bit of hassle for like the makeup and the clothes you were wearing at that time. Is, is that right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. Um, it's a weird one really, because you've got to remember that we were probably based in Chesant there. And, and since Brandon and I have known each other, you know, since being 16, 17, we've been traveling in and out of Chesant on buses and trains at God knows what time of night, in ridiculous clothing since we've known each other. So in the early days, it would have been fur coats and boot-cut trousers and makeup at 17, looking like a couple of rent boys probably, um, <laughs> travelling back to Waltham Cross, which is a fucking grotty part of um, Enfield, at three in the morning on a bus. So, yeah, I mean, we, we did. We did, you know. But at the same time, I think we just got used to it. And luckily enough... We didn't really, none of us came a cropper. We, you know, none of us got a hiding for it at all. Um, but yeah, I mean, coming from a small town like we do, you, you immediately, stay, it's not like London or a big city, you know, where you, you meld in with the other freaks, you know, you you stand out like a sore thumb, whatever you're doing, whatever you're wearing, basically. Um, so yeah, it was... Not so much in London, I would say, really. But I would say in Chesham, yeah, we it was, you know, a bit hairy I remember, at times. Um, I remember in like some of the early days, like I used to have to time my journeys to like come into London because on Saturdays and Sundays when like Spurs or Arsenal are playing, yeah, and like you'd yeah. literally get on the train and it's like packed full of fucking football hooligans yeah. and like yeah. You're, yeah. you're there like dressed up in God knows what, like fur coat or you know, like eyeliner and fucking massive big black spiky hair. And it's just like, mm. 
oh my god, I'm going to get my head kicked in here. You know, it was yeah. pr- actually pretty scary. I think you know, there's a few yeah. few times down at Chesnut Station where you did, you know, yeah, it was a bit confrontational. You know, you did have to be a bit careful, yeah. but you kind of learned yeah. that. You know, you learned how to sort of look after yourself, and you know, so by by like the mid to late 2000s, really, with all the the eyeliner and all that kind of stuff, you know, it's just like. To be honest, it wasn't a big deal. It was just something we'd been doing for for fucking years anyway. Well, I mean, look at you know, look at it now. You've got every meathead in the country wearing a pair of really skinny black jeans. Yeah, that that would have been piss taking material for those same people, but yeah. now they're wearing the same thing. We we don't wear them anymore. So it's you know, it it, it swings and roundabouts really. But yeah, I mean, it's yeah, it wasn't easy, but. At the same time, we were never going to back down from it because it was our identity. We always we always had a very strong visual identity with the band as well from the start. So it was all you know, and we were always travelling on trains and tubes and buses. So yeah, it was uh, par for the course, really. I think I, I remember um, getting ready to go out to Mousetrap one night, and um, you know, because obviously, because it started so late, you'd like you'd wouldn't leave the house until like ten, eleven at night. Yeah, and because yeah. uh, my dad was like worked for the police force in London, and like he used to work on the same patches where we used to go out. And I remember one night getting dressed up and whatever, and he was like, "Why can't you just be like all the normal people and just do something <laughs> normal?" And, uh, yeah, and that, he didn't he didn't mean it in a bad way, but it was no. just like you know, you know, like he's like yeah, trouble. Yeah, it's like, you know, I work around there. I know what happens, you know. Like, people yeah, like you get, you know. It's just, I just remember finding that really funny. But. We, we were lucky. We were lucky. We, ne- we never felt, we, you know, we never got a kick in at all. Um, so, yeah, I, I, thank, I thank, you know, thank me lucky stars for that, really. We, we, we just did not suffer in that way. We got to take the piss out of, especially when we had the bowl haircuts because um, mm. we all had the same haircut. It was like a cult, really, to be fair, because, you know, we all had the same haircut. We all wore the same clothes. We all wore the same shoes. We all wore, we all wore those little, um, you know, the shoes you wear for PE, those plimsolls, the black ones with a little yeah. bit of elastic on the front. We used to wear them um, <laughs> and, like, school blazers that are about two sizes too small. And we used to go on mass to these places like fucking... Uh, uh, where was that gig we went to near Manchester, Burnley or Blackburn or so or wherever it was, and we got out the we got out of the van. My brother got out of the van, and they said it is quite a good cuss actually. To be fair, they said, "Oh look, it's fucking Edmund Blackadder," which is referring <laughs> to the first series of Blackadder, which no one likes. But yeah, I mean, like stuff like that, you get a bit of like you get a bit of banter like that. But it never, luckily enough, it never went on to be anything aggressive, really. But um. You know, yeah, I know what you mean about. It. I remember getting absolutely hammered for uh, skinny jeans in college, but like you say, now it's like jolly short, pretty much. <laughs> yeah, and it's all. You know what? They've taken it too far, haven't they? Because their their bodies. I mean, we were really skinny back in the day, but these geezers are quite built, so it looks like they're upside down because their bodies <laughs> are really fucking thick and wide, and their legs are like matchsticks, so they look like knobheads. Um, not to say that we didn't, but at least there was a uniform sort of like stick thinness to it. Do you know what I mean? You know, the legs were thin, but so were the so were the shoulders. But they look like fucking morons, <laughs> <laughs> quite frankly.
And yeah, I just wanted to talk about the 2009 album. Is it X-Inc? Times Encounter. Yeah. That's right. Okay, I thought you were calling it something different. Sorry, yeah. <laughs> Times right. Encounter. Uh, yeah, because I was really enjoying that on um, on Bandcamp. And yeah. the song Communique. And okay. Oh, yeah. I thought it was yeah. Ish. And uh, I noticed it was kind of a, a theme for any later music where, and you even had an album that was instrumental, didn't you? So, yeah, where did that come in kind of thing? Um, I think that was the period after after the other album got scrapped. So that would have been 2007, eight, maybe. When did Times Encounter come out, Brandon? Nine. Yeah, that um, might have even been nine. But do you, do you remember the story about the managers uh, when we played at the Barfly, was it? When we played Communique and they went mental because we shouldn't have played it. Right, yeah, 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 yeah. Which yeah. yeah. just goes to show how fucking stupid that whole situation was, really. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, we'd never had to run a set list by anyone before. Um, and the fact that we stuck that in, well, you know, whatever, without going too much into that. But, the co- you know, Communique and stuff like um, Through the Eyes of a Child... No, it was earlier. Uh, stuff like uh, Motor Car and... I can see you stuff off of Times Encounter. Yeah, that would have been after Pop Oral. So I think we started writing that stuff at rehearsal. And then I, th- I got a feeling that that was almost in place before things like Reflective. I remember wanting to put yeah. Reflective Surface and uh, Exposure on Times Encounter, but... April 77, being the arseholes they were, wouldn't let us use the recordings or, or re-record the songs, would they? Because they owned the publisher. No. Right. We had to leave those off. So that was disappointing because they, they really should have been on that record or at least mm. Reflexive Surface should have been. So, yeah, I, th- I think that period straight after, yeah, some of that stuff on there, you know, uh, an exchange... Probably slightly going in a, in a more different direction, not not quite as melodic as stuff like I'm Ill and, and you didn't care. Um, but I think no, I think it's I, think I it's like the album. Record. Yeah, I think, I think it's, it's good. good yeah, I think it could have had if we'd have had a bit more weight behind it with PR and and press and stuff. Maybe some of the, as I say, some of the production. Uh, we were rushing it towards the end just because we wanted to get it out, um, but. It goes back to that thing with regards to the, the, the first mini album, Change Return Success. It's about documenting a moment in time, really, with the band. And we weren't the sort of group to go back to the stuff off of Pop Oral and re record that. We were sort of done with that almost straight away, really. So we, mm. we'd moved on. I mean, I think Imeal's on that album, uh, on Times Encounter, which would have been on Pop Oral. The Eyes of a Child would have been on both. Um, people change their minds or maybe not. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. So been, there would have been three or four songs that would have crossed over. But other than that, we just wrote a bunch of new songs to put on the new record. So we just moved on really quickly, I think, basically. I read that in 2010, you split up at that point. Is that right? Um, I don't think we've ever split up, per se. But we, yeah, we did go on a hiatus, yeah, 100%. Because, you know, Brandon and I, it's not like we, we've never not wanted to work together. We've always 
wanted to work together. But you, you can only, you know, you, sometimes, as I say, I think it was a lot to do with Keith leaving the band. You can't really, it, it takes the wind out of yourselves a little bit. You can't really see, well, what do we do? Do we get another bass player and we have another five or six months of bedding them in and then mm. we try and pick up where we left off? It, I think by that point we knew that it wasn't going to be as easy as it had been because the momentum had gone a little bit as well. And you know, we'd been around for a long time and I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing, but at that time I think we, we were just a bit a bit tired with having to pick it up again. Um so yeah, it was. But then again, you know, we, we did stop working on the children together, but we immediately started another band together. So it weren't like we weren't playing with each other. Um, and then that led on to to doing those few shows with James. It, you know, the bass player from the mid two, you know, early mid two thousands, doing a couple of shows with him, playing playing all the old stuff again, which we never thought we'd do because that's not us at all. You know, we don't. We're not that sort of band, but they were fucking fun, man. They were really good shows. Really, really fun. Really fun. Which led on to them doing Dimly Lit. So it never ended. Not really. Yeah, it just needed like a fresh challenge kind of thing. Mm. Yeah, and also, you know, I mean, Brandon and I pushed each other as musicians, you know. I think if we'd have come out in 2013 with a a post-punk record, People would have, people would have laughed it out, you know. They they would have said, "Oh, what you know, you've not done a record in three years, what, and you come back and do the same thing over again." Yeah, pathetic, whatever. We came back and we did a fucking blinding psychedelic record, which we, you know, which sounds weird for people, which must have been weird for weird for people. Like, where did that come from? But when you consider our background in sixties music, it's not that weird, you know. <laughs> We love psychedelia and we always have done. And our early music was very, you know, there was a period where it was very psychedelic. So for us, it it didn't seem unnatural. And we knew we had to challenge ourselves and we knew we didn't want to give the audience the same old stuff, you know. So it seemed natural to to go in that direction, you know. Whether or not that direction was going to last forever, it didn't really matter at the time. We we were invigorated by that music. I know that. So it's just kind of like a natural progression to get back together and do that album. It was at the time, and uh, we didn't we didn't question it. You know, we got we got given two weeks studio time in France, um, and I wrote all those songs in like two months, um, and we learned them, went over there. It was easy. Well, we easy, did, I think know. even um, I think half of the record I mean I I didn't even hear until we got to the studio so it was just like maybe maybe it was quite a quite a natural thing I think it was just kind of like you would play the idea through and then I'd maybe record some drums to it and then we'd even loop them or I'd just keep going or whatever or we'd like sort of sort it out in the mix after but yeah I remember it being it was the first time really where we'd gone somewhere like that wasn't it like and we sort of lived yeah you know didn't live in the studio but we lived sort of just down the road and sort of like you know dedicated sort of two weeks to sort of recording this album and yeah it was yeah. quite a creative process and actually i, I quite enjoyed mass- that it was massively creative because all it relied on was our intuition with each other yeah 
Because yeah. if we weren't on the same page, then it would never have worked. But at the same time, although mm. it was bringing different influences into the music, you know, broadcast, stereo lab, stuff like that, bits of uh, library music, which, which Brandon and I hadn't discovered together because by that point, you know, Brandon had moved up to, to Norwich. So there was a bit of distance between us um, logistically. So we weren't in touch as, as much. And, and, uh, and we were discover, discovering things separately by then. You know, if, if we'd come back together and Brandon had thought to himself, well, what the fuck, is, you know, like, what, what, where's this going? It would never have worked. Those two weeks would have been absolute hell. But the fact is that, you know, we know each other so well and we know each other musically so well that it didn't throw us. It was just like, okay, well, you know, let's lock into it. I mean, I remember a lot of the backing tracks were live, you know, when I was playing bass on all of it. Mm. And I'm not, I mean, I'm a bassist now, obviously, with Girls and Synthesis, but I'd, I'd never been a bassist of any bar doing demos at home with for Neil's children, I, I'd never really played bass to any extent. And um, I just knew that I wanted it to be melodic and I wanted it to be different to the old stuff, you know, because as I say, people might have wanted a post-punk record from Neil's children, but I guarantee if that's what we put out, we would have been slated for it because it would have showed no progression. And, you know, nostalgia wasn't what it is now. You know, like mm. we've all had a bit of distance from the 2000s and we can all say now that, yeah, this was good, that was good, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, four or five years after all that had happened, you can't start resurging a period after that amount of time. No. Do you know what I mean? It's, it, you know, it wouldn't have been natural and I couldn't have written that sort of... I mean, we've done it recently. I don't know if you've heard the song we did during lockdown. Um, yeah, first yeah. conversation that we ever had, which is very much old school, Neil's children, and not in a not in a cliche way. That's a proper, you know. I remember playing that to Reese and my brother and Jim, and you know, rough mix of that, and they thought it was an old fucking outtake, so <laughs> authentic, you know. But I couldn't have done that then, and I I don't think it, either of us could have done. I don't think it would have been natural to do that, you know, and I. I, I wouldn't have had that idea in my head because I wasn't listening to that stuff then, you know, and I didn't, maybe I didn't view the importance of the band in that way. Perhaps. I don't know. Thanks for listening to this episode of 22 Grand Pod. If Naughty's guitar music is your thing, then you might enjoy our Patreon page where for three pound a month, you will get access to the following series. The Naughty's Deep Dive, where we go through the likes of the Stalking Pete Doherty documentary in painful detail. My favourite 2000s album, where patrons and other guests come on to talk about their favourite album of the era. Legend or Landfill, in which we go through Enemy's top 10 albums of each year from 2001 and see if we think they are indeed legendary or for the landfill. Unsigned Stories, where we chat to bands that didn't quite make it in terms of signing that elusive record deal. We also have Fan Stories, where I talk to people about their memories and opinions on all things Naughty's Indie. You also get early access to any main podcast episodes and it's also worth checking out the youtube page where you can see extended video versions of the interviews as well as plenty of other bits of commentary and opinion all links are in the description now back to the pod no i had the, I had the same reaction to that song i was like it could have easily sounds like it could have easily come out <laughs> in the early days and i guess with a lot of bands that carry on making music you kind of almost expect the sound to get a bit softer on the edges and kind of thought with 
with you guys that's, that's just never happened kind of thing it's always been so every record sounds fresh kind of thing and that is that because you've done it on your terms kind of thing yes and also the fact that we we've never felt comfortable um staying in one place for too long i mean do you know what it is i think what it comes down to is if you're a music fan and a musician you're constantly listening to different music and it's always influencing you so prime example 2004 to 2006 2004 we were listening to gang of four and public image 2006 we were listening to joseph k orange juice scars um you know stuff like that and 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 of course naturally we wanted to incorporate that into our music because we were buzzing off of it you know we were loving that stuff and we were you know we weren't in a rut we didn't find ourselves well this is what we do and this is what we're known for so this is what we're going to carry on doing we were buzzing off of new music and if you're a music fan and a musician it, it's natural for you to just want to incorporate what you love into the music and we never stopped doing that you know from even dimly lit prime example you know i was hugely into broadcast at that time so there's a bit of broadcast in there you know um early days with the 60s stuff we loved that 60s stuff we were never felt we never felt the need to toe the line with what was being created by other people you know because in the in the mid 2000s we could have tamed the edges off the sound and gone down the block party route do you know what i mean and tried to be a bit a little bit gang of fourry without the bollocks you know a little bit talking heads but with a bit more angular guitars we never wanted to do that. We went with the with our own instincts. And that's why a lot of people who saw us across the country, by the time they'd see us in 2005, we were not playing I Hate Models or Calm Down or any of that stuff. We were playing new material they didn't know. So a lot of the fans came away from that asking us, why the fuck do you not play this material anymore? But to us, it was like, why would we? I don't, I don't mean that to be like we did it on purpose, to be contrary. But part of it was just like, you know, we were buzzing off of what we were doing at the time, new music. We yeah, never you, felt... you've got to be into it, haven't you, at the end of the day? Yeah, I mean, that that's the key for us. We could never phone in a, a performance. I mean, you know, without blowing, again, without blowing our own trumpet, we were the best live band of, of that era, Um you know, any band we played with, any of the bigger bands, we, we, you know, we were better than them. So the fact is that if we weren't into it, the shows would have not been good. So we, we never did a half-assed performance. We never did a, a, a questionable performance because we never allowed it to get to that stage. Do you, th- do you think that, Brandon? Yeah, and also, like, just think, like, listening to what, while you're talking, but, like, you know, in my head, I'm thinking of... Um, songs like Run Before We Can Walk and The Virgin Sleep, like yeah. two completely soft around the edges tracks that were probably, were they B-sides on the singles? Yeah. yeah. Um, that people may not really know about, but like you, you know, like you always had that in you, you know, you had those songs, like like absolutely beautiful songs that were completely not like the A-sides and showed that other side to your songwriting and the band that we had that we didn't really, you know, we didn't feel like we had to sort of like drop everything and be like, oh, we're going to like write songs like this. But every now and again, you'd throw one in there and it was just like, I always liked that about 
your songwriting because you yeah. you could do that, but it was never it, it wasn't like our thing. It was just like, oh, every now and again I'm gonna throw one of these in there. You know? Yeah. But great yeah, song. I mean I think I think stuff like I can't be myself as well, you know, you can yeah. say something. Mm-hmm. I, I, do you know what it was? I mean, I, yeah, I agree they were s- softer. I think they were sparser, yeah. but the intensity was still there. That's exactly. The, thing. the yeah. band thrived around intensity. Mm. So anything we did, whether or not it was fast or slow or aggressive or sparse or, you know, there was always that intensity, which I think came from being a live band, really. Um we, you know, whenever we went in the studio, it always felt a little bit like we'd never been in there before to any great degree. I never felt we'd been given the chance to explore the studio as much as other bands because we never had, you know, unlike Block Party and Future Heads, and we never had a Paul Epworth. I mean, we were supposed to actually work with Paul Epworth at one point. We even had James Dean Bradfield from the Manics wanted to produce us. Do you remember that? Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, yeah. We never had a strong producer take control of the band at any point. So I, I feel with the, the the studio sessions were always pretty much led by how we felt about what we wanted out of the sound. Mm. So I think the intensity came from the fact that we always approached it from being a live band, really. You know, n- nothing was ever really cooked up in the studio was it you know no no not at all so yeah i mean maybe that maybe the, the rough edges never got worn off because of that because we we never wanted them to in a way we always felt that the most exciting thing about the band was the live performance really you know and i guess a good example of you guys doing what you want to do would be the serial music album which described yeah. as um, an album that run, runs alongside thinly lit is that right yeah, to be fair, that was that again. That was during another period of quite heightened creativity, just after Dimly Lit. Once Sid was in the band, uh, it's really weird actually. We contacted Sid just before we were going to France to record Dimly Lit. We needed a bassist to do the live work, and uh, we we got Sid on board. And he came out while we were playing. We had we had a, a contract to do one show while we were in Toulouse recording the album, doing all the old material. So Sid learned all the old stuff in a couple of weeks, came out and did this show with us, and then we just cracked on with the album and Sid went home. But after that, we got Davey, uh, Davey Strange from Strange Idols, who Brandon had worked with before, and Sid, they became the live lineup with us for the dimly lit period. Um, <clears throat> and we had a good year or so maybe playing live yeah, with um, yeah. With that lineup, and I'm not being funny, we played some fucking belting shows as well. Really, really good, good shows. And then unfortunately, we sort of fell out with Davey, the keyboard player, a bit. It became a bit difficult to work with him. Um, and then he left. And again, that was another period which slowed the band down quite a lot. But the Serial Music album, it was uh, David Blanco at Blank Editions who said, he was doing a series of tapes at the time. Um, and he said, you could do anything you want. doesn't have to be a proper album. doesn't have to be this, that or the other. And at the time, I was writing material for what would become the Reduction mini album, which we eventually released a few years later. Um, but I had the idea of doing like an old um, library music record, um, which was instrumental and featured, you know, a couple of, 
different themes and then variations on that theme, like like an old library music record, you know. So in, in the 60s and 70s, you'd have a library album, which would have been uh, accessible to TV producers and directors. And they'd go into the music library and they'd pick out, uh, you know, a funky disco scene. And there'd be like a, a three-minute instrumental disco song that you'd place under a, a, a nightclub scene in a in a TV show or like, you know, um, you know, romantic uh, external music or whatever, you know, and they'd have that with a couple kissing on fucking Waterloo Bridge or whatever. So I wanted to create something like that. And I knew we could do it because we we were really tight at that point. And Sid's an amazing bass player as well, very musical. I think he's probably the most musical person we've had in the band, actually. And he had this little studio set up in Nettle House in East London. And... Um, I think we did that in a day, didn't we? Yeah, yeah. It was, yeah. Again, that was just one of those. It just sort of went in there and just done it. It was just quite easy to do, but really yeah, enjoyable. Uh, yeah, really enjoyable. Yeah, because mm. there was no pressure that we we weren't re- going in there to record a bunch of pop songs. You know, we were going in there to record whatever. Really, I mean, that was I. I would say that was probably the only time we ever recorded imp- as an improvised band. Before then, we always went into the studio with material and songs. And, you know, Neil's Children's live set used to be improvised to some degree, but that's the only time we ever went in to record something that we hadn't... I mean, I'd written the melodies for those those themes beforehand, but, you know, it, it was literally on the day, it was like, okay, let's try this in a swing rhythm, um, in a jazzy style, you know, and, and let's do this one more like a psychedelic version of that song. And let's do this one in this, you know, it was literally trying to get that library music aspect of it, um, creating atmosphere and a, and a mood really more than anything. But I, I really enjoyed that. And we did plan to do, I think we planned to do a couple more of those, but we, we never got mm. around. To it. Um, but no, that's, I, I love that. I think it's really good. Can we get that uploaded to Spotify, Brandon? Oh yeah, no problem. Yeah. Let's do that. Let's do that. Mm. That's great. Yeah, because when I started on Spotify, I noticed there's quite a lot missing, really, from your collection. From your yeah, it's because because we don't own a lot of the rights to the, the material. So, for example, like Reflective Surface, we don't own the rights to that. Uh, April '77 do. We got the rights off of the uh, Always the Same EP from Alan McGee. He he just said go for it. Um, we contacted the Change Return Success uh, uh, Soft City label and they said, yeah, put it up. I mean, Brandon's actually working through the archive and, and we're going to try and get as much as we can put on Spotify. Um, just for the completion aspect of it, really, um, it, it deserves to be up there. Um, it's a shame that it hasn't been. But you've got to remember that when we were working on stuff like that, even when we, we first you know, went on hiatus, the digital thing wasn't really a big thing. So we never really thought twice about it, you know? Um, but I would like to see as much as, as of the archive go on there as possible. Yeah, for certain. And as I say, Brandon's, you know, valiantly working his way through that. So yeah. And, and as, as time goes by, like obviously you, you sort of contracts finish and stuff anyway. So it should yeah. get easier as time goes by anyway. And that, that would just only keep the band going for longer you know like so there's always something to put out and there i think the 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 holy grail would be to eventually get pop oral put out because that's never been heard 
it's just difficult. We can't seem to get in contact with the guy at the moment, but um, we'll get there. We'll get there in the end. And yeah, you, you mentioned the reduction album, and I was listening to that this week. Um, and I kind of got a, I don't know if it's a comparison you'd welcome, but I kind of got like a, an early term in parlor kind of vibe from that. Is that, would that be? Yeah. A little bit of that. Yeah, a little bit of that. I would also say that around that time, I was getting quite heavily into sort of underground hip-hop and stuff. So with things like Circle of Hands, I would say it's it's, it's more hip-hop influenced than you'd think. I mean, Brandon's drums on that album, I think a lot of them are, are looped, but yeah. they're really like, I don't know, that material I think is... I think some of that material is actually better than a lot of what's on um, Dimly Lit, personally. I think Circle of Hands is fucking a brilliant track. I think um, Words That Rhyme, stuff like that. It's way more experimental. And I, I would say there's it's probably, I wouldn't say stylistically harking back to the early stuff, but I would say experimentally, it's, it's more experimental and it's taking a, bit, a few more risks, I would say. Uh, but I love some of that stuff. I think it's really, really good. And that, unfortunately, because the band was sort of, that lineup of the band was tailing off a little bit, you know, that material was unfinished for a good year or two until, you know, I said to the guys, look, I'm going to, you know, we were remixing it, remixing it, and we never we never drew a line under it. And then a, a year or so after, I just said, look, I'm going to get a mix of this done and we'll just stick it up and, and let people know that we're not going to be active for a bit. Um, and yeah, I love it. I think it's great, you know, um, really pleased with that material. And that's all self-recorded as well. That's just me, Brandon and Sid um, doing that ourselves. And I think, you know, if we'd have kept a lineup together for that material, you know, I think, you know, we could have done another really, really good album around that time. Mm, yeah. Yeah, kind of like linking that to, yeah, like you mentioned the song you did in lockdown. Um, so yeah, it's like the format now where you just you do everything yourselves, kind of thing in terms of recording and stuff. Um, to be fair, we'd always done that along. I mean, I'd always done my own demos from home. As soon as we got a bit of cash, we invested in a computer setup. Um, they enabled us to record eight tracks at one time. I know it sounds a bit primitive now, but that was a really big deal for us back in the day. So we'd be able to do like pretty fucking good demos in, in, in the mid two thousands, you know, when people were paying to go into studios. So we, uh, Brandon and I had studied a little bit of engineering and production anyway, when we first, you know, as teenagers. So we cut out a lot of, we, we saved a lot of time by doing a lot of that stuff ourselves. Um, and nowadays, you know, with regards to that lockdown song, Brandon and I have experienced enough engineers and, and mixers and uh, we, you know, we know how to do that stuff really well now. So it, it just doesn't even make sense. And also in lockdown, there was no way we could even get in the same room as each other. So, I mean, that song really, that came out of absolutely nowhere. There was no discussion <laughs> about it. We didn't, we weren't talking about the band. We weren't, saying about you know <clears throat> should we do x y and z that was literally off the back of um me get restringing my old black telecaster 
And there's something, I'm not a believer in fate or spirituality and blah, 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 whatever. But that guitar's just got so much history with regards to me playing it. And I, I've not played guitars for years now with, with Girls and Synthesis being a bassist. And I don't really play guitar anymore. And I restrung that guitar and started playing it. And I was just like, fucking hell, this is just, this is just Neil Children. This guitar and me playing yeah. it this yeah. is the sound of, of that, that thing. Um, so, you know, I, I didn't even tell Brandon about it. I just sent him this, this, this stuff and I said, look, put something to that. Let's just see what happens. Let's just give people a, a crumb of fucking, you know, enjoyment throughout this period, you know, being locked in. Brandon sent back this amazing drum part and that was it. It was, it was pretty much done. You know, I mean, it was so, then Max mixed it. it I mean, how long was that? What did it take? A week? Yeah, not even that. Yeah, yeah. And you know, <clears throat> as I say, when you, when you, when I played that to people, they couldn't believe it. They thought it was an outtake from two thousand and six, two thousand and seven, and it, it's great. You know, it, I was so pleased with how it came out. You know, it really was. And 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 I remember doing the vocals to it, and I haven't sung like that in years and years. Even the late and <laughs> children stuff, I didn't sing like that. And it came out on me. It was just like, it, it was like something else had taken over. Do you know what I mean? It was like my body returned to an earlier period of of, of, of just of singing and, and approaching something. And even lyrically, I mean, I don't write from that perspective anymore. But it, And it wasn't contrived. If we'd sat down and thought about it and discussed it, it would have been contrived. But we didn't, so it wasn't. So, you know... You can't argue with the results, really, as far as I'm concerned, you know. And just in terms of, like, songwriting, like you say, your process hasn't changed. Um, It's always been pretty free-flowing. Like, you've never felt pressured to be more commercially successful or anything like that. No. I mean, I would say that when, you know, when our sound did get more commercial in 2006, 2007, that was 100% natural. That was purely because we were listening to more melodic music, like Orange Juice, Joseph K, Scars. It was purely by chance, you know. It had nothing to do with um, our position or our, or our status at all. It was, we never worked like that. We never, we never discussed the next move. We never discussed what we wanted to do. We never had people saying to us, how about this, how about that? Bar a little bit of interference from management saying, well, why don't you, you know, you need to sing in this chorus. They they were sticking their beak into stuff which didn't need to... The music was going that way anyway, just because of what we enjoyed. Um, so, no, we've, we've never felt any pressure to, to do anything. You know, like, we've never even pressured, pressured each other. Brandon's never said to me, well, you know, John, maybe we need to write a fucking... You know, we need to write a song that's going to get in the charts or whatever. No one ever doubted me as a songwriter. No one, no one ever, everyone had faith in me as a songwriter. Well, I hope they did, you know. Everyone just assumed that what we were going to do next would be the right thing to do. And it, and it was. We never doubted it. Ever. If we'd have second-guessed anything, we'd have split up. Seriously. You know, like, we just never did. You know, we always assumed that we knew best and we did, but, you know. But also that that era that, you know, when we were doing stuff like that, like it just felt like you could do something and it would 
it would do what you wanted it to do anyway, if you know what I mean, that like, it didn't feel like you had to compromise because you could just do what you were doing and if it was right and if it was the right thing, then it would work anyway. You know, if you wanted to get into the charts with a single, it would get into the charts anyway. Like you didn't, I, I didn't feel like bands like us had to make that comp, sort of compromise. I, th- I see it as slightly different, maybe just from a songwriter's point of view, because something like I'm ill, that should have charted. That should have been, in my opinion, top 20, because I think that song's just an amazing song. So I don't know whether the I top agree. 20, yeah, you need, you it, do need like a, you need a higher level of backing and, yeah, and exactly. money behind so, it. But So, I mean, the way I felt about it was the people who were charting at that time were, it was the post-Libertine scene, which we were never part of anyway. But what I would mm. say is that I don't know whether, whether if you did something, it would work. I don't think that was always the case. But what I would say is that it never felt, not for us anyway, like we needed to try and do something. So mm. if we released a single that was commercial, that was from our own choice yeah, of yeah. playing that song. If we released a single that was uncommercial, that was also our choice. You know, there was never mm-hmm. any dichotomy between I Emil and um, Motorcar, for example, and they were on yeah. the same album. There was never any, you know, we probably wouldn't have released Motorcar as a single just because of its pure, you know, uh, dissonance and discord. But at the same time, we never put any extra weight on I'm ill. You know, motor car was mm. as important to us as I'm ill. It, it, yeah. it probably probably worked differently for other bands. I, I think with extraneous influences saying, well, you know, we need this, we need that, you know, you should look at this. We never had that. And, you know, we wouldn't have worked well with that either, I don't think. We were a bit too bit too cynical to have people saying, why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? You know, it wouldn't have worked for us. And then, then if, we, if you, um, if, I was going to say, if you look at the bands that were releasing singles probably around the same time, sort of 2004 or five, it, it was, you know, you'll see a pattern like all their early stuff done quite well. And it always seems like the stuff that was a bit more controlled and put out by a major, gradually their chart positions would be not as high. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like gradually they'd slip out of the charts on singles yeah. that you thought should get higher. So to me, yeah. that would suggest that when the bands were doing stuff more on their terms and how yeah. they wanted to do them, they were more successful. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, agree don't, I don't know that. what the science is behind that. I don't, I don't, I don't know if there's any logic behind that or what, or whether it is that you know you just you just lose that little bit of spark, or whether you I just think you lose, lose the interest. You lose the character of the band. Yeah, yeah. And that's what happens. Is you know, there's a reason people like groups, and a lot of that is because they are a certain way, and when money becomes involved and people start sticking their beak in, I think what happens essentially is that the bands start doubting themselves because, I mean, we were lucky. We were a free piece for a majority of our career. If you stuck another member in our band, all of a sudden the decisions would take twice as long to make and 
everything would be more confused and 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 and, and dis- difficult to solve. But we always just said, well, you know, we always backed each other up. We always believed what we were doing was right. And, you know, we never had people breathing down our necks trying to say that what we were doing was wrong. If we started yeah. doubting ourselves, I mean, God forbid, I, I don't know what sort of records we would have made, really. You know, because at the end of the day, you wouldn't have been making them for yourself. And that's and people, you know, even if people are not musical, they're not stupid. They can tell when something has been laboured over and is you know, and contrived, people can hear it. Why do people why do people love the first Oasis album? Why do they not like Be Here Now? Because the first Oasis album is them. It's them. It's a distilled oasis. It's it is distilled them. And yeah. Be Here Now's a fucking bunch of coke snorting idiots. Do you know what I mean? So <laughs> no, do you know what I mean though? So, you know, people aren't stupid. They know, you know, they know. They know the viewer shit. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> And just in terms of playing live, like you mentioned the hiatus for a couple of years, but apart from that, have you been able to like consistently play live over the years? Yeah, up until, um, well, yeah, we we never had a dry period live until Keith left, I would say. Even when James left, we we got Keith in the band pretty much like, if, if I remember rightly, within a few months, really. Um, yeah. And he was fully indoctrinated into you know, the ways of, of Neil's children, whatever that entailed. Um, and I would say up until Keith left, uh, yeah, we, we, we were regularly all the time. We, we never struggled for gigs ever. You know, I mean, towards the end of our career, we, you know, we didn't have an agent that we were booking ourselves, but we were always busy. Um, and then obviously since then coming back with the dimly lit, thing again yeah we were pretty active gig wise but once Davey left again just slowed everything down it's to do with it's to do with people as well it's really hard for us to um it's not like a band where you get a session guy in and you know we we live we live with each other really I mean especially in the early days it was it was a lifestyle rather than the band I know everyone says that really but it was a lifestyle rather than a band and it did take its toll. And, you know, girlfriends would get a little bit annoyed about how much time you were spending, but we needed to be like that because as a free piece, you've got to be in each other's pockets. Otherwise it just doesn't work, especially live. I mean, you know, one of you's not firing on all cylinders in a free piece live. It's a fucking disaster. Seriously. You know, you've got to be tight as people, as a unit and as friends. And when that goes, like that—that's when everything goes. Really, I think. But yeah, we never had problems. We went, you know, we went to Russia. We played in Russia. We played in Moscow, which is fucking incredible. We did Japan twice. We did the UK, however many times. We did mainland Europe, lots and lots and lots. We never got to the US. But to be fair, we never really gave a shit about that. It wasn't like we were never enamoured by America at all. You know, even the music we liked was not American majority of the time. So, yeah, I mean, we were always gigging and we were always good. And as I've said a couple of times tonight, without sounding too arrogant, we were the best. You know, we were we were really fucking good live, you know. Um, and I think most people would agree with that who saw us, you know. You couldn't really top us, I don't think. Yeah, one of our recent guests, um, Dorian from The Long Blonde, said you were 
one of the best or most underrated bands from that time. Yeah, we were. We were. We were. I mean, and they were they were great as well. I mean, don't get me wrong, like Long Blondes in the early days, absolutely fantastic. We again, very, very good friends of ours. We had some fucking amazing times with that band. Um and there there were good bands. There were really good bands at that time. But I think the difference is that the live thing, everyone always seemed a little bit... I mean, we, we told with Block Party early on and I was a massive Block Party fan and their records were fantastic. But live at that that time, they were not very good. They weren't tight at all. Um, it, it always appeared to me, like bands from that period, when they played live, they were always they always seemed like they were a bit fearful of it, a little bit. Like they were always a little bit scared of playing live to an audience, you know, and we never had that problem. And I think that's partly because we played live so much before anyone took notice of us. We never were in fear of an audience. We never had stage fright. We never felt out of our depth at all. You know, we always just treated any gig like any other gig. And we were always really well prepared. We always chose the set lists. We, we rehearsed a lot. So I think that went in our favour. A lot of other bands always just seemed a little bit out of place once they'd reached a bigger stage. Would you say that, Brian? Yeah, I, I totally agree. Yeah. I, 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 again, you can't put your finger on it, but there was just always that something with some of these other bands that kind of were on that slightly higher level where they just didn't feel as comfortable on the stage. And you could I think being a musician, you could kind of see that from the side of the stage, you know? Yeah, 100%. Is there anything you would do differently about, I don't know, the early days and, well, any time in New Children, really? I, I wouldn't have got involved with the management team that we had in the mid-2000s. Um, also, no, that's the only thing, actually. I, I don't regret anything else. You know, I always felt, whatever decision we made was the right one, whether or not it put us back a little bit or whatever, I never felt like we'd made a wrong decision. I always felt that whatever decision we made at the time was the right one. So I I, I don't feel any resentment towards anything we did. Do you, Brandon? No, because we, we didn't go into it with any kind of plan or, you know, as, as we said earlier, there wasn't anything happening at the time. You know, we whatever came to us, we made for ourselves. You know, you can't, I don't think you can really, unless you were going into it and it, it was already there for you and you were just kind of making the most of the, the scene or whatever was going on. I think really, you can't really say, I would do it differently or I regret this because you're, you know, it should be pure, you know, you should be going into it like completely open and like whatever happens, happens. Is there a song or album that makes you most nostalgic about that early period? I've, I've, there's quite a lot for me. I think the first Whirlwind Heat album, first Liars album, the first Yeah, 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 ZP, you know, you could even push it to the first Block Party album, first Future Heads album. Um, 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 even stuff like um, like Band Red by Kato. And, Kato, yeah. yeah. Um, there's, 
Billy Childish, like the Buff Medways at that time. Yeah, the Medways, yeah. That, uh, what's that album called? Uh, what's that one? It's on Transcopic. Graham oh, Coxon. Steady the Buffs. Yeah, that's it, yeah. That's yeah, but Billy Childish used to have a residency at Dirty Water Club in Tufnell Park, so we used to go like every week or every month, whatever it was. We used to go and see him all the time. So, yeah, I would say Billy Childish is a massive one. Um, early Rapture, you know, uh, out of the races onto the tracks. And um, uh, House of Jealous Lovers was a fucking huge, huge tune. I'll tell you what, I've got a Spotify playlist called Not Shit 2000s. I'll send you a link. Maybe put it in with the description of the podcast because that, that's got all the stuff we used to listen to in it, basically. Oh, that's it. Yeah, I'll definitely do that, yeah. And then, yeah, we're trying ask bands about, you know, putting themselves in the position of a band now, like, say... Neil's children were starting out today. How do you yeah. anticipate it'd be different for you guys? Like, what do you think the challenges would be? I wouldn't want to start that band today, to be fair. Um, I feel now that young musicians, especially after this period of COVID and businesses shutting, and what I see as a radical gentrification taking advantage of businesses closing because they can't afford the rent. I think as we go further and further down the line, the, the opportunities that we had are not going to be there anymore. Um, I think venues, there's going to be less and less venues. There's going to be less and less spaces to, to rehearse in. There's going to be less and less uh, uh, opportunities for bands to to play in front of audiences. So I wouldn't want to do it now personally if I was a young person I don't know you know it's I know it sounds a bit self-defeating but I'm so glad that we did we what we did when we did it because you've got to remember that we 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 formed in the late 90s so we caught almost the end of the pub circuit in a way so a lot of the early gigs that we did we did an early tour of Art Brew they were gigs above pubs and you can't do them anymore because pubs don't have gigs anymore a majority of the time they're because they're purely there for you know, for people to go and have a drink in or have, have a bit of grub or whatever. So I am a bit despondent about the music scene at the moment. I, I, I don't think it's going to be easy for any band unless they come from it from a different point of view. Maybe they come from a sort of more university aspects or maybe they come from a, a music score or whatever. Possibly that opens a few doors, but starting on the spit and sawdust uh, venue circuit, I, I think that's sort of gone as as we know it anyway. Yeah, I mean, it was, uh, we were, I think in a way we were so lucky at the time, you know, because when we, like, you know, our first London gig was, um, what was it, the Red Eye, John, in London, yeah. in Islington, yeah. you yeah. know, um, and every time we, we were playing somewhere in London, it seemed like soon after that it was closing down, probably not because of us, but you, ne- you never know, but, you know, it's, <laughs> it's, but do you know what I mean? It was just like it was kind of becoming, you know, we were seeing that trend happening even from back then. And, and you know, like I live in Norwich now and I I see a lot of uh, young bands playing here and it's it's so different and, you know, there's n- not the same opportunities. And I don't know. I mean, I, 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 I really, you know, Neil's Children wouldn't work now. It wouldn't. You know, it just wouldn't work. There isn't the same opportunities. It's not the same venues, opportunities. 
um, promoters and other bands as well. I just yeah, true. It's a, it's a real shame, but you know maybe like the 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 youngsters now that are going to be coming through in the next few years, perhaps they're going to find a new way of doing things that maybe we wouldn't have done twenty years ago. But you know. I, I don't know. I, I don't know if maybe we're going to go back full circle, and it's going to ha- have to go back to like a real basic DIY thing of bands putting on their own gigs and getting their own fans in and selling their own tickets again and stuff like that. Maybe. Yeah. Do you think it's hard for a band like you mentioned the money that was involved back in the day? Like, I think it's a bit harder for bands to make an impact with. Like, the well, impact there'll be no money. Internet. Yeah, that's the yeah, thing. Yeah, there, there, there's no money now. I mean, the the, the kind of sporadic like little shitty deals we were being offered at the time were kind of quite basic anyway. Um, you know, I, I, I don't see how bands are going to get offered. Even the bands that are signing to the bigger labels, they're not getting any money from it. You know, they're not going to, they're not going to earn a living out of it or be able to sustain any sort of career out of it. You know, you don't earn any, uh, earn anything out of streaming or selling anything digitally. So, I think it's just, yeah, you, you know, fewer, like, out of all the bands that are out there, there'll only be one or two that will kind of do anything, if that. Yeah, the last song we try and finish on is a, a funny story about the Gallagher Brothers, if possible, but just a funny story about, I guess, any of the big names from that time would be good. We we played a festival once where we were first on and Oasis headlined, but we, I mean, we never got, we didn't get anywhere near them. Uh, <laughs> You know, yeah. they they wouldn't let us near them for a start. I don't I don't even think they wanted to be there. No, you know, it was, no, it was, in like, yeah. it was in Palmer, weren't it, in Mallorca? Oh, that's it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah that, I don't think they could be asked of it either. But I um, mean, to be fair, any anyone that we met, I think they were always all right. Really, I mean, I, we never we were never big enough really to sort of hobnob with um with big, like, start, you know, we didn't have people producing our records from, you know, we weren't like that, really. I mean, you know, we, I'll tell you what, we met the geezer, and this would have been a big deal for us, we met the bassist from the Diagram Brothers backstage at Offset Festival, and me and my brother lost our shit. Do you remember that, Brian? Yeah, vaguely. Vaguely. Well, there you go. Yeah, there you go. We met someone that no one else has ever heard of, and we were really excited about it. (laughs) Yeah, it's good one. Um, yeah. <laughs> 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 didn't um didn't we once we played a gig somewhere and like we were talking to someone backstage after the gig and he said he was the bass player from Simply Red. Oh yeah, actually, yeah, that's a good <laughs> one. Right. We were playing in Sheffield for uh Daniel was his name Daniel Ray or whatever. Um yeah, we played this gig and we were in the bar afterwards and we were all a bit wrecked and having a few drinks, whatever. This guy comes up and starts speaking to Keith, our ex-bass player, about, yeah, you know, I'm a bass player. I used to play for Simply Red and blah, blah, blah. So he was trying to explain to Keith how to play slap bass. Um, <laughs> Keith then tried to palm him off on me, and the guy extended my left arm and started using it as a fretboard and playing slap bass on my arm. <laughs> How's that? Hell. <laughs> That's about as far as we go for famous people, mate, to be fair. That'll, that'll do me, mate. That's a funny yeah. story. <laughs> you know what? The, the funny <laughs> thing is we, we, we probably, I mean, if, funny stories. I mean, we, 
every day there was something fucking ridiculous that happened to us. Yeah, yeah. And like, yeah. I mean, I mean, we did we did meet people and stuff like that, but I don't think it ever really phased us or was nah. an issue. You know, like, you know, like even I don't know, even with the bigger bands that we played with, like to be honest, we just got on with people, didn't we? Like, yeah. Well, we, I think we yeah. always managed to have a laugh with people. You know, we always got on with everyone and. You know, I mean, no, no one like none of the sort of Britpop casualties. You know, like the sort of Blur Oasis or anything like that, or the Jarvis, or you know, we never really mixed with people like that. But I can't no. imagine they would have liked us anyway. No, I mean, I think we were always focused on what we were doing as well. So, yeah. you know, even interacting with other bands of our age was, you know, wasn't a common occurrence really. So. Yeah. I remember once um, being in central London and went to like a basement club somewhere and um, I think like the Yeah Yeah Yeahs were there and right. and I think it was when the Horrors had supported them and I think they thought I was Josh and they started, oh, really? like, yeah, they started talking, talking to me and like talk, asking me about gigs and stuff like that and I think I had to just play along because I didn't know what to say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I love gigs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> Yeah. You know, like, yeah, stuff like that. Well, didn't but... Nick Zinner produce one of the early... He, he did some sessions with the Horrors early on, didn't he, I think? Yeah, I think he was talking to me about guitar parts on the song, and I was just like, yeah, brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> 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 I've got to go and get a drink, mate, because uh, you're boring the arse off me. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 